You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Welcome back, everyone. And for those who've just arrived, hello. I'm Shada Islam. I work at Friends of Europe on development issues. Um, as I said, the conversation continues. And this panel is about investing in Africa's future, and we're focusing on fragile and conflict situations, but it's also a wider dialogue of the challenges and the opportunities of investing in Africa. As we said earlier in this conversation, Africa is a continent of multiple realities, many-faceted. It's home to some of the world's fastest-growing economies, the African lions, if you like, but also to many least developed countries and half of the fragile and conflict-affected states of the world. I don't know what the exact number is. It varies from agency to agency, but there are many out there. And as we'll see in this, uh, in this session, investing in these countries by international organization, partner countries, people, uh, companies, is a very, very striking challenge. Uh, they must, we all must contend with damaged infrastructure and trade, weakened institutions, destroyed regulatory frameworks, political uncertainty, and of course also fragile civil societies. It's often said that civil societies are very important for a recovery, resilience, etc. But these, in these countries, they are especially fragile as well. So joining me on this panel, uh, go from here to there, um, is Lema Gaboi. She's the Liberian peace activist and 2011 Nobel Peace Prize winner as well. Um, very interesting. Uh, Lema has founded the Gaboi Peace Foundation, which provides educational and leadership opportunities to girls and women in West Africa. So it's really a pleasure to have you here. Um, we then have Mr. Olivier de Boisson. He's chief economist for emerging markets at Société Générale. Um, then Neil Gregory. He's head of thought leadership. I love that title, by the way. Um, uh, head of thought leadership at the International Finance Corporation, which we all know is the largest global development institution, which focuses exclusively on the private sector in developing countries. Um, next to him, Evelyn Anit. Oh, sorry, Evelyn hasn't come yet. Sorry, my, my, uh, we are waiting for Evelyn to be here. Antonella Santilli, head of sustainability, global renewable energies at Enel the global power company, and last but not least, Hans-Joachim Preuss, managing director of our great partner, GIZ, the German, the German Development Agency. So we're waiting for the Ugandan state minister to arrive, and we're going to, however, start the conversation. So, Neil, I'm going to start with you, because um, the IFC is in the process of releasing, or will very soon release, a study called Business, War and Peace, private enterprise in fragile and conflict situations. Why are you focusing so much at this point on the FCS? I think we all, as a global community, have this challenge of achieving the sustainable development goals. And we know that the biggest challenge in meeting them are going to be in the, the conflict and post-conflict countries. Increasingly, that's where the largest numbers of poor people will be, the largest number of people have access to basic services. And so it's critical that we start to break the cycle of conflict and poverty in these countries. And to break that cycle, we think the key to that is economic opportunity and jobs. If we don't create opportunity, if we don't create jobs, 
then the incentives are to continue in conflict or to slide back into conflict. We want to break that cycle and create incentives for peace and incentives for stability. And we think that private enterprise plays a key role in that as the main generator of opportunity and jobs. But we know that conflict drives away private investors. It drives private firms either out of the country into the diaspora. It deters foreign investors or the businesses that remain are really just in survival mode and aren't able to invest and expand. And so we really want to understand better how we can help businesses grow starting in that very difficult environment. And so we've been looking at our experience as an investor, as IFC, we've invested about $1.5 billion um, in conflict states around the world, and we plan to do much more in the years ahead. And we've looked at the experience of others and talked to many, many investors and firms to try and uh, learn some lessons of what, what will help uh, increase investment in these uh, countries. And so I just want to highlight a few points uh, in, in the short time that I have, uh, and then we can pick up more in the discussion. But in doing so, I really want to emphasize that one of the things we find is that when you look at these countries coming out of conflict, that there is actually an important economic opportunity. There's often a post-conflict boom in construction and in services, and there's an opportunity for risk-taking investors to be the first mover and to move into markets which are less developed and which haven't been tapped by other investors. So we think there is an opportunity there for investors that we can support with institutions like IFC. So how are we going to get there? So I think the first thing is we have to reduce the level of risk for investors to something uh, which investors are willing to tolerate. And the risk is often just because of the uncertainty and the lack of knowledge, because there's so little investment going in. People have very little understanding, very little knowledge of these markets. And so together with the World Bank, we now have um, allocated $2.5 billion from the current uh, refunding of the IDA soft lending window of the World Bank, specifically to be used by IFC and by MEGA uh, for various de-risking mechanisms, taking away the foreign exchange risk, taking away some of the government performance risk, providing some guarantees, and various structures which will just take away some of the risks which private investors tell us they're not willing to take in these markets. Secondly, we need to innovate and encourage new ways of doing business in these markets. I think one of the exciting opportunities is the rapid spread of broadband in Africa. I think by 2020, it will be pretty much universal coverage, and so this now provides the opportunity of a platform for e-services and various forms of uh, doing business which relies much less on physical infrastructure and be able to move around the country physically, which as we know is often difficult in conflict situations. Thirdly, we need investors willing to take equity and support new businesses. You can't expect banks to support startups. You need equity and venture capital for that. And so that's why IFC, for example, has a program called SME Ventures where we actually train fund managers and become the anchor investor in venture capital funds, which we now do uh, in all the post-conflict states in sub-Saharan Africa. In doing this business, there's two other things I want to uh, emphasize. One is that we have to go in with our eyes open and understand that the private sector is operating in the context of a very complex political circumstances. And we need to be careful that the private sector operates in a way which leads to inclusion and, and breaks down the barriers between different communities and doesn't 
increase the divisions in society. And so we have to make sure that we support investment in a way which is very sort of politically aware. And finally, one of the biggest barriers to growth in these conflict states is that they become isolated as a result of the conflicts. And so the more we can reconnect these uh, conflict countries to international markets, that also will help in this path to stability and peace. So things like supporting uh, trade finance, supporting uh, exports and the logistics and ports that go with it, supporting telecommunications links, all of that, I think, lays the groundwork for uh, reconnecting these countries to international markets. So to summarize, I would say there is opportunity in these markets for the private sector, but we won't capture those opportunities through business as usual. We have to think differently and operate differently, and that's why we're trying to uh, share some ideas to encourage people to think differently so we can seize this opportunity. And, and Neil, just a, a very quick follow-up. I mean, do you see enterprises taking up the challenge and actually thinking differently, or are they stu still stuck in a, in a kind of a warped mindset? So we have many clients uh, that work with us in these markets. We have banks that are going in and offering trade finance facilities and uh, SME lending facilities. We, we have infrastructure companies that are going in and building power plants um, and, and they're doing renewable energy in these markets. Agro-processing companies see these uh, markets as opportunities. So I think uh, there are many companies who see the growth opportunity in these markets in Africa and want to go in with the right support to make it happen. So I guess there's a question of first mover advantage as well. If they get there earlier before the competition, then they see the, the rewards later on when the countries actually become flourishing and thriving. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I, I want to turn to you, Lima, if I may. Um, one of the things that interests us very much at Friends of Europe, obviously, is the role of civil society in, in reconstruction, re resilience, recovery. Uh, and I was wondering, in a country like yours, which has been through its uh, uh, many, many, let's say, uh, turbulence as well, uh, volatility, um, what is your um, experience with civil society actors? What role have you played? And what are the challenges that someone like you is, is facing? Well, thank you. And I, I think... For us in Liberia, we have been over the last few years... You have to hold this close. <clears throat> we have been over the last few years recognized as one of those places with very vibrant civil society. Um, during the war years, it was the activities of civil society that kind of brought a lot of the issues that were happening to the bear of the rest of the world. We had the churches involved, the mocks involved, women's group, youth groups. So it was really a collaboration of different sectors of civil society working. Liberia was recognized as a failed state. So beyond fragility, we were failed. Mm -hmm. There was nothing functional within that country. It was civil society, I would say, women's groups in communities, keeping the economy going at the basic level. It was the religious groups that were also trying to keep the justice structure running. So every little group identified what they could do in their different areas and had it going, even in the midst of failure, as the word declared us a failed state. And 12 years into democracy, would say, and close to 15 years after the signing of the peace agreement, Liberia... And civil society in Liberia is struggling like many civil society organizations in different places in the world. 
Today, we constantly hear that the space for civil society to operate is shrinking. And most times, people tend to place it squarely on the shoulders of the regime, the powers that be. All the governments are doing everything in their will and power to ensure that civil society does not function the way they're supposed to function, which is true. In many countries, repressive regimes make it difficult for civil society to function. So if you're talking about what is the rule or what is necessary for any nation to have a vibrant civil society, you will say space, voice, and resources. And once these three things are not happening for civil society, it's difficult for them to do what they're supposed to do, maximize the gains, be the voice for the voiceless, and be the watchdog, check and balance, transparency, and all of the different things with governments. So we talk about the government part, but I think there's a second part that most times people fail to recognize, and it is the role unintentionally, because I don't want to be quoted as saying nations and international organizations intentionally. Unintentionally, they get involved through bilateral agreements with government. Most of the fundings are tied to, say for example, recently we have a fund from the Africa Union to do some work in Liberia with youth activities, youth and peace building. But there's a particular ministry of government that have to certify you yeah. with the AU in order for you to even become eligible to apply for such grant. Close your eye for a moment and think about those organizations that have been very harsh on government. Which ministry of government will certify them? And so over time, we're beginning to see that a lot of these bilateral grants that are supposed to come to civil society organizations with the intention of helping to fast-track democracy, human rights, and justice in most of these spaces, they are not attracting the groups that are doing the actual work. What we're also seeing in some places is that government entities and people in government are starting their own organizations to make it to look like, okay, we're doing what we're supposed to do. So over time, it's gotten really challenging for civil society to work. And if you're talking about working in fragile states, it's even more difficult, yeah. So tell me, you set up your Peace Foundation um, and you're working with young women and, uh, and, 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 and young people across parts of Central and, uh, sorry, uh, Western Africa. What are the kinds of challenges you faced at a personal level? <laughs> so let me just give you a typical example. In Liberia, we have to um, register in order to function as a non-for-profit. And every year you have to renew your designation paper. Even though we've paid, but our certificate has not been given to us for the past two years. Someone is holding it because, quote-unquote, I'm enemy of the government. So you have these kinds of things that would challenge you. For five years, we've had the foundation. And for close to five years, we have not benefited from a lot of the grants in country. Because again, I'm a troublemaker, and a lot of these organizations don't want to see, be seen aligned with me. I had one private company invest in the community that they were working in for us to help them fast track after school program as a means of giving smart students some money in their pockets. They, we signed that grant in secret. 
and we could not list them on our website as donors, and they couldn't list us on their website as one of the grantees because they did not want to get into trouble. So you have this little foolishness that should not be because the work is intense. There's a lot of needs on the ground, especially in post-conflict countries. But if you have to deal with the politics of speaking the truth and trying to bring the status quo to, I mean, change the status quo, then you get into trouble. Is that something to deter someone like me? The answer is definitely no. Because I tell people I didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize by being a wimp. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we need more troublemakers like you, I'm sure. And, you know, we'll be bringing them here to Brussels to speak truth to power. Thank you very much, Lema, for your comments. We'll come back to some of your points. Hans-Joachim, I wanted to turn to you before I turn to the private sector, because you're working for many years, I think, in these uh, uh, CF CSOs, uh, FSOs, FCS, fragile and conflict states. And what is, your, um, what is your experience in trying to bring investors and bringing growth and prosperity and stability in, in these countries? I'd like to make a first statement. If you uh, are living in a situation that is marked by a high insecurity, open armed conflict, I think... Uh, any investment will be wasted in such a situation. And the only business that run in such a situation is the smuggling of arms, of drugs, and of people. So, but luckily, and that's the good news perhaps, that not all conflict countries are completely covered by armed conflict or civil strife. So perhaps only some regions are affected by, by conflict. And when we are talking about fragility, it does not necessarily mean uh, that uh, a country um, uh, that, a, uh, that a country is is in conflict, because we know different concepts of fragility. Yeah. It may be uh, some characteristics that might stay stand alone or in a combination of the others. The first characteristic is uh, the question of legitimacy. Boy uh, pointed to that. So that's the lack uh, of um, the rule of law. The government is not able to, to guarantee civil rights uh, to the population. So uh, that's leading to a lack of legitimacy of the government. And a second characteristic is um, the question of capacity of a government. So is a, is a government able to provide the basic services for its population? For instance, be it food and nutrition security, health, uh, basic education, vocational training, and so on. And the last uh, characteristic is uh, the question of authority. So is a government able to, uh, uh, to let's say, to have the authority uh, over the whole of the territory of a country. And if this is not guaranteed, so that's a lack of authority. These three components make up the state of fragility of a country. And these can appear either solely or they can come together with the others. Uh, in my view, we as an implementing agency for the German government, but as well for the European uh, Commission, we are checking whether we can work under a certain environment. And uh, for instance, in fragile and conflict-prone countries, 
uh, we uh, are implementing a so-called peace and conflict assessment so that we can find out what, what are the major stakeholders uh, in, a, in a conflict situation and with whom can we cooperate. And it's not necessarily that it's uh, the state government with, uh, with whom we work, but as well may, it might be local governments, it may, might be local authorities, it might be decentralized communal services. Uh, and in this regard, uh, we are trying to create uh, a conducive environment for private business uh, to intervene in these areas. We th think that capital is a necessary, uh, necessary prerequisite for economic development, but we know that this is not sufficient. That's not uh, enough uh, to really foster economic development. You need an institutional uh, environment, an institutional capacity. You need human capacities because if you finance an infrastructure, you need people who are able to maintain it. You need an institution that's able to guarantee its, uh, its um, sustainability and so on. And so what we are trying to do is to create this conducive environment and implement activities that are helpful for private business, be it domestic or be it foreign investment. Mm. So, uh, Hans-Joachim, uh, would you agree with Neil that behind the headlines that are, you know, alarmist about what's happening in fragile states, uh, that there are opportunities for business beyond what we see? What we observe is that uh, Neil pointed out to this uh, venture capital that's looking for, for uh, opportunities and chances. But I think uh, this is not the vast majority of uh, local and international entrepreneurs. In the, in the previous panel, uh, Karen Banze pointed out that there's a lot of capital that leaves Africa. And so if even African capitalists are not investing in their own countries or in the region, I wonder why uh, international investments co uh, should come uh, to the continent and invest risk capital. My observation is that um, not all the international entrepreneurs are really risk taking um, mostly they are risk averse and even if they can have a high rate return on their investment it's not likely that really the capital that is necessary to really bring the continent forward is mobilized uh, with this uh, with these activities mm -hmm. thank you very much brings us nicely actually to olivier de boisson the points that uh, hans has made about there being money but not being you know, used in the right way or possibly not even being there because people are risk-averse, not really uh, willing to go into areas of tension. Um, you yourself, I think, Société Générale is very active across Africa. So what is your experience? Thank you for the invitation. Let me first say that uh, as a, an international banking group, we do not really target uh, so-called FCS countries, of course, but it so happens that sometimes countries where we are present go through a, a conflict or are weakened. And this was especially the case in Ivory Coast, where the group has a large subsidiary. Uh, during the transition at the end of the tenure of Mr. Bagbo, 
and it can make the link, you know, one characteristics of banking sectors in sub-Saharan Africa is that most of the time they are over liquid. By that, I mean that there are more deposits than credits and banks are looking for opportunity to use the funds and they don't lack, you know, they don't need that much external funding. And uh, also many investments are self-financed by lack of ability to attract funds from banks or from abroad. So they are missing links, you know. What are the qualities of a bank in such a fragilized environment? Uh, I, I would say two qualities. First, the, it's a quality in itself that the bank doesn't go bankrupt in a, in a FCS situation, that the first quality of the bank protects the deposits. And probably the second quality, at least in our, in our business, is to be able to, to link with international markets, as was said in the previous roundtable, that is one role of the banking sector. And beyond that, of course, seize any opportunity for rebound. And that is ex exactly what has happened in Ivory Coast. But first, we, uh, I, I insist on that. The banking sector was rather really resilient because it was over liquid and not that much sophisticated. So in the case of Ivory Coast, we had to close the bank for about five weeks. But then we were able to reopen it without a lot of damage. So that's the bright side of it, you know. The, the bank has been very resilient, making very few losses, despite this closure, which was completely not planned and, uh, and, and, and forced, in a way. So the bank redeployed in the, in the last uh, six years extremely rapidly. It was very oriented short-term, with 70% uh, of the balance sheet invested short term, now it's being reduced to below 50%, you know. And uh, we have, of course, benefited from cooperation with uh, development agencies, especially Proparco, uh, on special schemes to share the risk with SMEs, and also from schemes with the World Bank to ensure global portfolio, and it, it has helped us develop. We have also made several PPPs, so I'm not sure it is people's PPPs, but at least it is PPPs and they are up and working. Uh, toll roads in Ivory Coast, for instance, and also financing uh, optic fiber through, you know, reserved uh, fiscal uh, receipt, you know, that uh, made this possible. But there are nevertheless hurdles, even in this post-conflict situation, and I want to emphasize a few of them to be as realistic as possible. One hurdle is a lack of long-term savings, which reflects in itself a, a problem that is not only in sub-Saharan Africa and explains the reason why some of the money gets out of the countries to be reinvested from abroad. You know, that is external intermediation, if you want. And uh, this happens in other areas of the world also, and it can be reduced progressively with more confidence. But of course, it is a constraint on banks. The second is uh, the lack of collateral. You could say uh, when their warehouse is good, but there is a huge issue linked with the cadaster. You know, the, the history of cadasters can also be traced of history of development uh, in the Western world and elsewhere. So this helps, you know, take collateral for the bankers, helps finance, you know,
project that otherwise would not be financed. And there is a strong link with the urbanization process because uh, property right and also uh, cadaster goes along with good urban governance. And this is a point where I think uh, it's a huge challenge for any African countries we are in. The, we are only at the beginning of urban planning, you know. And probably there will be, uh, uh, and we see that already, big differentiation between countries, which make, make it more and more, you know, impossible to speak about Africa, or uh, as to, 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 to sort of a common, you know, situation of countries. But there will be countries with better governance, including at the local city level, simply knowing the exact power of a mayor, whether he can interfere on, on the scheme for water, electricity, and so on, or not, you know, is very unclear at this stage in many countries, or has to be tested, you know. And this is, uh, you know, all that is around the term of governance. But let me finish also with another issue which we face, which is regional integration. It's true that the story of Ivory Coast has been very positive up to now, and has been a degree of regional in integration in, uh, in this part of the world. But nevertheless, you know, cross-border investment, not only in West Africa, also in Eastern Africa, is, not, is the item that is not working. You know. And this is uh, uh, something that the private sector will not uh, solve by its presence. It can be part of roundtables. But I think a lot of focus should be probably due to political complexity. Mm -hmm. We don't have, it's not easy. It's certainly extremely complex. But let me end of that note of optimism. We see differentiation in the governance. And uh, this uh, gives us, you know, uh, the desire to invest where uh, we see uh, not only markets growing, but also some better governance being put in place. And it's already very clear that, you know, it's better in countries who have a diversified set of exports than in, in a country that only export oil, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that is very clear. Let me finish on that. Thank you. I'm sure there will be questions from the audience and myself later on as well, but let's uh, go to Antonella. So, Antonella, Olivier has set out quite a few of the complexities of uh, investing, not just in fragile uh, states, but also more generally in Africa. What is an experience of a company like yours, which is very active in, let's say, the, the, the lifeblood, electricity and energy uh, across uh, the continent? Okay. <clears throat> um, first of all, if I may, I would like to frame a little bit the issue of energy and investing in energy in, in Africa, let's say. Um, I think certainly energy is a service, is a basic service, it's a commodity, as we say. But most importantly, I think it's an instrumental right. And uh, by this, I mean that it brings, of course, jobs in itself, but it's also a mean for economic prospect. And I go back a little bit to the previous panels where our panelists were talking about cold storage, uh, cold chain, or computers to foster economic development, all these things needs energy and energy maybe it's even I mean it's among the sectors that may be worstly let's say damaged in a fragile or conflict situation so I see I think that's a little bit the frame so what a private and another thing 
um, investing in energy, I mean, a private company and utility as I, um, the one I work for, it's a long-term investor because, you know, a power plant is there at steel for 30 years. So what we need, um, on a very high level, we need, as Michael Lee was saying, we need, um, uh, I would say, uh, some certainties and regulatory policy to lower the risk. So we need, in a way, certainty of rules. No incentives, no problems on that, but just that the rules are there and stay there. And that's on a very high level. Now I'm skipping, skipping, because that's another thing that I was listening and it hiccuped something to me. I'm, I'm skipping, skipping, sorry, many levels in which a private sector, I mean, a private company is work together, for example, with international finance institutions or development agency has to work together, or NGO, local or international. The other thing I think that it needs to bring about sustainable development, meaning long-term development, is on the other way, on the other way of uh, the chain, if I may, so people. So I think um, it needs to, in a way, work with the people that live and host their infrastructure, and uh, in a way that it's, sorry, I may seem too many big words, but to transformative from the two parties and uh, giving voice to them on the way they want the development. These two things. Right. I'm going to open the floor to uh, questions and comments from yourselves. But before, so please start thinking. Thinking caps on. Button is pushed. Uh, but before I turn to you, uh, I'd like to ask Neil to comment a little bit on what you've heard. And, and one thing that's always intrigued me, Neil, is that actually fragile states don't like to be called fragile states. And I think... The categories maybe aren't the most helpful thing because we like to talk about conflict and post-conflict situations because in some cases it's a sub-national conflict, in other cases the conflict crosses borders. So that makes it more com complex but also makes it more, more hopeful because one of the problems you have, as other panelists have mentioned, if the whole state is in conflict, often that really degrades the ability of the government to provide uh, basic services, to keep infrastructure services running, etc. And the private sector needs those basic government services uh, to operate. So I think that, that's something which uh, I think was emphasized in the, in the first panel as well, is the complementary nature of, of government uh, and private sector activity. Uh, I think just picking up on a couple of other things that, that the other uh, panelists said is that um, helping to the diaspora and Africans themselves reinvest in these countries uh, is very important. Um, I, I think they also face risks in investing in these markets and to the extent that we can create new opportunities and new vehicles um, for, for the African diaspora to invest, I think there's good uh, appetite for, for that. Um, I, I think the other thing is um, putting in place the, the some of the, the, the basic uh, framework for secure property rights. Uh, my, my colleague here talked about the importance of property surveys and 
property rights, I think also uh, well-functioning courts so people can enforce contracts uh, is equally important. So there's clearly a lot to do in these markets, but the last comment I would add is I think in all of this, it's important that we balance doing some things quickly, getting some quick wins to create the jobs and the opportunity, which, as I say, starts to change the dynamic and create a, a dynamic towards peace, while at the same time working on some of these longer-term things, you know, infrastructure is a long-term process, building, rebuilding the state capacity is a longer process. So it's a little bit of a, you know, we need to do both things, which maybe isn't an easy answer, but I think that's mm -hmm. the, the challenge before us all. So first aid, but also looking long-term, and then uh, the nexus between development assistance is perhaps humanitarian assistance that has to come in initially. But let me, let me open the, the floor to questions and comments from yourselves. Can I, I, I see hands going up. I see, you know, I have a problem with the light in my eyes, so I do see Robert Cox, and I see a gentleman at the back. Um, I see yourselves. Excellent. So we already have, and I would like... Uh, the ladies in the, in the room also to come up with some questions. I see male hands going up. Um, so let's, let's start with Robert, please. Bob, please. Thank you. Robert Cox, uh, trustee, Friends of Europe. Um, we've been hearing about um, situations in Africa where banks seem to have plenty of liquidity floating around, uh, don't know what to do with it, risk-averse. But of course, there are others who have less liquidity around because they're actually using it and they're less risk averse. Can we now please start naming names, be a bit more specific, say which ones have got it right and why? Right. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, there was, a, yes, the gentleman right at the back. So, uh, Nassim, would you run there? May I ask everyone to be as short as Bob was just now? Uh, yes. Um I'm Mahmoudar from Somaliland. Uh, uh, Somaliland is the most conflict uh, country. It has been peaceful for the last 26 years. It has developed you know, institutions of good governance. And now we are welcoming a lot of uh, investment from the DB world and from the, our diaspora. My question, madam, relates you know, to the IFC uh, in terms of helping such countries in rebuilding, you know, their financial institutions. Uh, what role, for example, have they done in that regard in, in concerning, you know, such countries which are coming out of conflict? Thank you, madam. Thank you very much. Uh, over there, please. I will come to you. I've noted your hands going up. I want to give the floor to people who haven't asked questions yet. Yes, please. Um, this is Sami Sambu from uh, the Association for the Kenyan Diaspora here in Bilax region. Um, my question is regarding the cost of, of, of capital. Um, in the Kenyan economy, very recently, um, the president actually capped the interest rates for, for loans in the country. And in so doing, the intention was to ensure that banks can lend um, to entrepreneurs at a rate that is accessible, that, that is repayable. I wanted to get from the panel a sense for whether they think that could actually work. Under what circumstances could that work, where the government steps in to regulate the interest rate? So concessional uh, lending rates? This was just a commercial lending, actually, saying that you cannot lend at greater than 15%, roughly. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, noted. 
Uh, anyone else at the back? Now that, uh, yes, please. Could you take the microphone there, please? Hello, my name is Albert. Um, from Zimbabwe. I had a question about um, conflict itself. Uh, for some actors, it appears that it, um, destabilizing or at least inciting or participating in conflict is beneficial. Um, and so it could be questionable to um, say that conflict has now become a market or destabilization has become a market, which means that you have a competitor if you are trying to invest in post-conflict um, areas or in, in t uh, maintaining um, stable regions. Um, so do you think that um, you have a competitor? And if so, um, is there a strategy you have that is just as aggressive as theirs? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go here now, please. Uh, just put your hand up so my colleagues can see you. Thank you. Ferredosha European Commission, TC Crow. We have a program on technical standardization infrastructure. So my question rather to the implementing agency, GIZ, to which extent do you think that quality infrastructure, a more stable standardization system could help to attract investment? Because standardization to a certain extent fosters cooperation, helps market integration. We have a good, uh, good, a good example here, a single market based on technical regulations supported by standards. So I stop here. My question is to which extent this technical issue could f attract investment. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, gentleman over here, Nassim. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, thanks for the chance to, to comment again. Um, at WFP, we're a public agency, but we, much of our work is built around commercial markets for different things. And um, I would just say that we very much agree with, with many of the comments about the importance of infrastructure, communication, technology, stability of rules, um, and where the public sector is involved, um, certainly um, inclusive procurement. I wonder if any of the panelists might be willing to comment on the importance or the role of or the potential impact of cartels, um, especially next point about um, the need for quick wins. To what extent is this a challenge? Um, is this an issue that needs to be... Um, can, can you repeat what you just said? Because I, I think we, we didn't quite catch it. <clears throat> okay, the importance of potential risks around uh, cartels, especially as we seek these quick wins that Nick mentioned. In these um, fragile contexts, um, uh, the degree to which one can rely on a broad, a broad spectrum of, of um, participants and, and market players is limited. I'm curious about the, the degree to which that is something that is an issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I still see two hands, which is great. So the lady over here and then the person at the back who I can't see. Hello, my name is Lily Mundell. I work for the GIZ on the topic of multi-stakeholder partnerships. And I find it very interesting. It's been talked about the inclusion of all stakeholders and then seemingly almost parallel in private investment and the role of private um, entrepreneurship and government, um, and government. And I was wondering, how do you bring them all to the table? Or are there examples? Do you think that's necessary? Or is a parallel structure between the public sector and the private sector, as in government and private sector, the way to go? And then the other stakeholders come in in different ways. So how do you see that nexus coming together? Thank you very much. And final question from the person at the back. 
Hello, my name is Uzo Madu. I'm from What's In It For Africa, so I work on EU-Africa current affairs issues. And my question is about the informal economy. So we've talked a lot about rules and regulations which are often missing um, in post-conflict nations. So essentially, um, what opportunities do you think there are in leveraging the informal economy? Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start with the Lema because you have to leave uh, slightly earlier to go and meet the Queen. So uh, I'll, I'll uh, forgive you for that. Uh, but uh, do, do come into the question of the informal economy and, and also how many stakeholders, you know, can you get around the table, your own experiences? Well, um, I, I, I think one of the things that I've seen from my own country is that over time, even pre-war, before, before war, the informal economy had contributed a lot to, say, the education sector. Most of our communities and people who live in those communities can say, I benefited, my educational sojourn mm -hmm. was paid for by someone who sold something very small. What I have seen in my own country is the inability after war, everyone recognized that this sector is contributing to livelihood at the micro level, but how people consistently, especially when it comes to women, think that the way to do this is by giving them peanuts and hoping that it can build it up. I am always really very upset when people come and say $50 can help a woman out of poverty. I think $50 increase her trouble because when she doesn't have a dime, no one thinks that we should go after her. But once they see some NGOs coming and bringing these women together and saying we're doing microfinancing, then wherever else they used to go to get assistance to do other things, stopped. So I'm really not for it. Another thing that I see happening in most post-conflict economy, which may not be related to your question, but it's something that is, I'm very passionate about, is how people come into spaces with completely different trade ideas that is not relevant to people. For example, you go to rural communities after war and say, we're here to teach the women how to sew. And you have a whole farming circle that is passing because they're spending their time in a room learning how to sew or bake or do something where no one else is going to come to benefit from. I think the first time I made this comment was about 20 years ago, and I'm going to make it again. If we must invest in micro, local communities for economic empowerment, let's invest in something they already know. For example, if you go into a farming community, if these women are bending over to scratch the farm, as we say in Liberia, why don't you find machineries that will help them do more work faster and they will get the gains better? In most of our countries, we have seasons for fruits. Why don't we go, you go in there and teach them how to preserve some of these for funding? 
You know, so when you, every time we miss the mark, and every time people come back with the same thing that we want to change the dynamics of the economy, but at the grassroots level, at that informal level, is not changing because they're still coming with the poverty mentality to solve poverty. And it never works. That's the, 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 the final point for me on that. To that young man's question about conflict being very lucrative, I think until governments and societies get to the place where they begin to recognize that, if we invest in the basic human security needs of people, that's the best investment in security. Imagine a country like Liberia, and I'm not saying we've done it, but if you take a, a, a $50 billion million military budget and then you give $5 million to education and $6 million to healthcare and $2 million to commerce and all of the different things, you can have all of the machineries to stop war, but the disgruntled youth will be there to continue to do war. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as long as the natural resources that have been taken out of communities are not benefiting the young people and the people living in those communities, wars will also be the most attractive ways of getting their share of the loot. We've seen in the Niger Delta, we've seen in Congo, and we're seeing in many other parts of Africa. It is very, very important for us those investing, and I read an article where people are saying that when it comes to peace agreement now, most people will say, let's look at the extractive industry. So in most of the peace agreements, that's the only thing they want to focus on. No one is looking at small and medium enterprise as a way forward for peace. New innovation, entrepreneurship for young people, investing in their new ideas. When I was growing up, some of the business ideas I'm seeing my children do was not something that I brought to my parents. But it's something that is lucrative because it's, it's a totally different world now. Bringing people to the table. I don't know if I have any answer to that, but I think that in any situation where we want to see good happen, we have to deliberately seek out everyone that we think can make impact at the table. And I think when we exclude a particular group from whatever decision is supposed to impact communities, we are causing more harm than we're doing good. I, I think for now, that's my take. Are you managing to sort of have a community of people uh, across maybe regional borders, uh, country borders that thinks like you and that your voice is amplified? The points, the very, very pertinent points you've made are amplified, listened to by governments, aid partners. Well, you see, one of my biggest, and you, you're about to destroy my calmness with some of your questions because oh, I prayed to be very calm when I came here. But I, I, I think... <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> I think in, in what we see with the way... There's a lot of double standards around the way things are done. Everyone says we want to be friends with Africa. Everyone says we want to see Africa thrive. Everyone says we want to see the best kind of come out of this continent. But it's not always the case. People come and instead of going to where they, they help 
can really be beneficiary. The people with the people, most people want to deal with only governments. Mm -hmm. Are they listening? No. And I would say emphatically no. Because if you come and say I'm doing an assessment in a little in the capital city of Monrovia and I want to change the dynamics of how the economy is done, but I'm only whining and dining with the government, the ministers and all of this, is that any change? Hell no. If you're putting money into countries for change to happen and those who are supposed to monitor and evaluate if this money is going the right place, do not even have transportation to do the work that they're supposed to do. Do you expect to see change? No. In terms of the governance structure of Africa, we have so many leaders who are not doing the right things by their people. Back home, they're so unpopular. But as long as they're dancing to the tombs of the investors and the, the, the donor countries and all of the different things, they will continue to feed them and, and cheer them on. And then they said, 20 years down the road, this is a very unserious continent. <laughs> who's unserious? If it is the Europeans who are doing business like that, you are more unserious than the African leaders. <laughs> because if you really want to see good happen, be true to yourself, be true to your investment, be true to your resources and say, we're going to do this the right way or no other way. But you cannot come into a system and a structure and say, so we have answers. We have answers on the continent. Not only do we have resources, we do have answers. But if you bypass those who could help you conc concretize some of the help that you're bringing and you're saying, I just want to talk to one group of right. people, then you're not going to give us the change that we're going to make. So all of this thing about development days, investing in Africa will keep coming back to Brussels Every year, and I'm not coming back next year, but I'm just saying people will keep coming, keep coming to these kinds of meetings, and we will not see the change that we want to see on the ground. Billions of dollars right. have gone into our continent. Why are we not seeing changes? Because the way people are doing business is not sincere. Mm. A lot of double standards. Right. Very interesting and very, very wise. I think Mr. Nwanza in the first panel made very similar points of frustration um, about the ways the things are today. But I do want to turn to you, Hans, to comment on some of the things uh, and also uh, questions from the floor. Where um, we're being told, Lima is telling us nothing has changed. But I keep hearing here in uh, Brussels and when I travel that things are changing. Consultations with civil society, uh, more partnerships, etc. These are happening. What, what is the truth? What is, what's happening? Yeah, I'm working with and on the continent uh, for almost 30 years now. And I cannot, uh, let's say, say that, um, that there has not been any development. I think there are so many things that happened with regards uh, to democracy, to governance, to infrastructure, to education, uh, to, let's say, to, to health, to nutrition, and so on. So a lot of things have changed. I, perhaps in the countryside, as, as our colleague uh, from, from Kenya pointed out, perhaps there are some spots, but if you uh, look at European countries, you will uh, see very remote areas where, let's say, apparently not much has changed uh, over the last year. So I think that's very common. That's not uh, unique uh, to African uh, countries. 
Yeah, let me come back to some of the remarks that have been made. I found it a very provocative uh, statement to say that uh, destabilization has become a business, business in itself. Uh, yes, I think this is true and it's beneficial for some of the actors. But I think that's not the question of development cooperation. I think this uh, is uh, the task of regional bodies as, for instance, uh, the African Union with the African Peace and Security Architecture who should uh, play a much more important role. And what happened in the Gambia, I think, was uh, necessary and made sense. What happened now in South Sudan is a scandal for the African Union, in my view. So crisis and conflict affect neighboring countries. Uh, they reduce the economic perspectives of these countries. They lead to internally displaced persons. They lead to migration over the continent. And I think uh, the African Union has a very, very important uh, role to play in order to stabilize and to restabilize the situation. Um, I, I made one point in my first statement that I said there are uh, even uh, not uh, the, whole, the whole area of a country is affected. And uh, the colleague from Somaliland, he asked uh, how can the International Finance Corporation or other uh, finance uh, bodies uh, can, can help the country. There are pockets of relative stability even if the surrounding uh, uh, country is, is not so safe. For instance, uh, that is the case of uh, Somalia. And uh, in Somaliland and uh, to a certain extent as well in Puntland, uh, economic development can take place and GIZ is working there to enhance the attractivity for, uh, for domestic uh, investors but as well for international uh, invest uh, investors. Uh, I'm still talking about countries that are conflict affected, that are fragile countries and uh, usually what can uh, be done in these countries is not usually the big business, it's not the big companies. But we can talk about the small and medium enterprises uh, because, if, because they rely on local resources, they rely on local networks. For instance, in the case of agriculture, we talked about that in the former panel, uh, with the three T, transformation of agricultural products, the transportation, and as well the trade uh, of these products can contribute uh, that, uh, to the fact that the added value is, uh, remains in the country and is not exploited elsewhere. This uh, question of value change, value change uh, cha uh, is very important. And uh, with regards to your questions, whether quality infrastructure can attract investments, yes, it can attract investment, but quality infrastructure is not en enough. We need the institutional structure, though, for instance, uh, what, what we call public goods. For instance, security is a very important public good, and this must be ensured by an institutional uh, network, by, an institutional, uh, by institutional capacities. And last but not least, when we are talking about the uh, conducive environment, we should take into consideration 
the question of human capacities. We need skilled workers to do uh, to to really keep these businesses running. It's not only engineers and university professors. We need masons, we need carpenters, we need plumbers, and we need mechanics. And I think that's the question of vocational training, and this will enhance uh, the employment and perspectives for, for young people. Thank you. Thank you. So VTE uh, is, is a very important part of uh, the growth prospects of uh, the fragile states. Uh, Olivia, a lot of questions about the cost of capital, about equity, uh, and uh, so your responses are welcome. I'm not sure I understood all the questions completely correctly, but I will try to answer. First, the question about the cap on, on interest rates. I think this is something, it's a measure that has been taken uh, or proposed in, in Kenya recently and had been uh, smoothed, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. It's, it's something, you know, that uh, if you look at the history of uh, banking, it has existed in many countries, uh, the view that interest has to be capped, otherwise the lender takes advantage of the, of, uh, of, the, of the borrower, especially if the borrower in a weak situation. So it has existed in my country, France, for many, many years. Taux uh, d'usure, you know. So why not? Oh, it, it's all in the specifics, you know. If it's, uh, if it's meant to to determine, you know, uh, the, the return of the, or the profitability of the banking sector, I think it will fail. So it has to be smoothly designed for very specific situations and not to target, uh, in my view, the, the business of lending to corporates, which I think is the case in Kenya. So I am doubtful that it will really achieve a lot of results. But you see, the, the problem is in the specifics. Maybe it makes a transition with the the risk appetite of the banking sector in Africa. Uh, very complex uh, question. Uh, for sure, you know, there are many banks worldwide and some have more risk appetite than others. You can say that a lot of banks are able to structure some operations with commodities finance, and, uh, but fewer of them are present on the ground in various countries, which is the case of my group, Société Générale. And for us, of course, we, we, we have invested in uh, equity, so we are there to, to stay. And the challenge is not to, to maximize profit in a cartel-like situation, but rather to be, uh, to be sound and secure and be accepted in a given country for, for, the, long, uh, for the long-term perspective. And so we are confronted with two, two facts to, 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 to sort of, you know, devise our own risk appetite framework. First, the cost of doing business is rising for us due to our own regulation in Europe, which is uh, stricter and stricter, you know, all that, that uh, standards that we have to follow have, uh, have increased a lot since the last crisis, which is certainly uh, partly a good thing. But... When you apply that to sub-Saharan Africa, it has a cost, and it is preventing some kind of business. So more and more, the challenge for us, which are in Africa and want to stay, is to keep on the right type of business that uh, is uh, long-term rewarding, you know. And uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, it's not uh, as if there was huge opportunities. I was surprised myself just observing the banking sector in Africa, you know, not so many banks have rushed to take positions on the ground. You know, you could say they are, 
they are, you know, banks that were already there for a long period of time. You have South African banks that have invested. You have Moroccan banks, which have expanded. And you have some Pan-African banks. But uh, you don't have a lot of other banks. And so the, the risk, you know, reward and risk appetite framework is not so easy to, to do. And our own feeling inside the organization is that we cannot compete on the same level of some competitors which are African competitors and which don't follow the whole set of rules that we have to, to follow simply, you know, on, on, uh, on tracking the records of our customer. It makes, it's make a link perhaps with the, the challenge of working with the informal economy. Of course, the informal economy is uh, very large, especially when, you, when uh, tackling, you know, household finance. Maybe only less than 20% of the population has a formal uh, a job and we as a banker we can only work with the formal economy so it restricts you know what we can do i think one solution partly is again with the collateral because you can work if you have a collateral that is not informal that is clarified you know you can work even if the the the, the you, you don't have so much to deal with the revenue part which can be more or less in the grey economy, as is the vast majority of the population. So this, in my view, is one issue to unlock the potential of the informal economy. And uh, maybe that's it. Yeah, I think you've covered all bases. Thank you very much. Antonella, please. So I also want you to just deal with the question of regional integration. If that would be a spur, would that be something that would encourage companies like yours to be more active in, in Africa? But please take up some of the other comments. Sorry? So please do take up other comments as well if you want to. Oh, okay. But I'll answer first uh, your question. Maybe I go back to the stakeholders, public, pri private, and... Uh, yes, definitely. Regional integration would um, encourage... Uh, the private sectors to at least an energy company I, I, I like to talk of what I know um, to, to, to invest uh, because it I mean for quite obvious reason in a way that the, the regulatory framework would be in a way consistent and as well some infrastructures in our in our case I thinking about the grids for example that would enhance our yeah, possibility sure. to invest, definitely, yes. And, uh, and about the stakeholders? Yeah, no, but I mean, about the stakeholders, how is it possible of, in, by a practical way to involve the public sector, the private sector, and maybe uh, the people, if we can, or civil society, maybe it's... Uh, um, um, I think it's, it's possible, at least it's triable. And I think everyone, although I cannot define it very well, has its role. But for example, I think that some public goods needs to be addressed by the public sector. And I'm thinking my experience, I'm not an engineer, so I'm thinking about basic education and basic health, for example, as something in which you can private sector, for example, cannot substitute the public sector. So in a way, maybe in a short-term crisis, you could do something, but the most uh, consistent thing you should do is work together with maybe the municipal or regional authority so to develop some of these services, if of, of course they are not. And then the, 
the private sector is an economic agent. So on the economic level, then uh, it can act. And it's also clever from a business point of view. I mean, it's not just good, it's clever. It makes a lot of sense. The thing I think that was very well said in this panel, it's how you do it. So you cannot now do it by imposing the suing course to the ladies, as it was said. So going there with your idea, and certainly, um, I, I believe, and that's my personal experience, that people in the community know very well where they want to go. So sometimes they do not have the means, and many kind of means, but if you listen to them and you partner with experts, because most of um, the, the communities I know, for example, the basic economic activities, agriculture, I don't know anything about agriculture. And in my company, there are very few people that know about agriculture being an electricity company. So, so we partner with people that knows, about, know, sorry, <laughs> about it and with, with, the, with the experts, local experts, and with the um, objective of the very same people who want to be, you know, develop, it's a very bad word, then you do it. It's, I mean, how we do it in, in, very, in practice, I don't know if it's the way, it's our way. Before going to invest, we, we make some analysis. Uh, of course, as a, as a utility company, we made some environmental analysis, but for now, it has been at least five years now, we have also been conducting socioeconomic analysis of the communities. I think you need to know where you're going. And for example, being an Italian, I don't know many of the things. So I think it's also a question of respect. Once you know, you share your knowledge, so what you have learned, with the very same people to see whether right. what you have learned makes sense yeah. to them. And of course you, you correct. And then we actually, we work only on, let's say, selected issues. We work on the issues that are material for us and material for the communities we are in. We don't fund everything. We select those things that are important uh, for us and not just for cynical reason. Also because we believe we can follow the project, right. okay? But uh, yeah, I'm long, but anyway, sorry. No, but thank you. Thank you very much for the clarification. I think it makes it very clear how things process, uh, progress also on, on the ground. So Neil, I'm going to give you the final word. I just want you to point to two more things actually. You know, we often in this world, we name and shame countries, but what about naming and praising a few countries that you think have actually sort of changed uh, over the years in a successful uh, way. Uh, are there any? And, you know, obviously we've been talking about Africa because that's what this conference is about. But are there lessons that Africa could learn um, on the issue of fragility from, say, Asian countries or Latin American countries? <coughs> Thanks. Uh, just before I come to that question, there were a couple of other comments I, I wanted to, to pick up on. And firstly, I wanted, sorry she's left, but I wanted to very much agree with the, the message from Lemar that we do need to do things uh, differently and look differently at these uh, conflict situations. I think there's a danger of looking at the structure of these economies and looking at what's there and thinking that's where the investment opportunity is. What we need to do is look at what's not there. So the informal and microenterprise sector looks big in these countries because the formal sector and large firms are so few and so small. 
the rural sector looks big because the urban sector yeah. hasn't developed and is so small. The extractive industry seems to be big because so few other industries are able to operate mm. except for that. So I think we need to change our perspective a bit and focus on what's missing and invest in what's missing. Because we know from other countries' experience that it's the urban, formal, large-scale firms that provide higher productivity, better-paying jobs. And we know that getting a better-paying, higher-productivity job is the number one way that people move out of poverty historically. And so that's the opportunity that we should be focused on in these markets. Second thing, I just wanted to build on the comments about the challenges for banks uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. I think the whole Basel framework of international banking regulation has made it much more expensive for banks to invest in these markets because they have bigger capital requirements. At the same time, all the know your customer and combating the financing of terrorism rules have made the transactions costs of even having a correspondent banking relationship with a bank in these markets just too high for the potential profit you could make out of doing that kind of business. So we've seen a big pullback from European banks and other banks right. from sub-Saharan Africa. And we think it's critical. You know, we raise this um, every opportunity we can with regulators and international bodies. We encourage others to do so. It's critical that we balance managing those important risks to the banking system and risks that need to be managed but not strangling and suffocating the private sector by not enabling banks to do their business and to lend to those markets and to finance trade. So I think that's a very important point I wanted to, to highlight. And then in your last question about uh, examples of success, I really don't think you need to look beyond the African continent for examples of success. I think you can see uh, from earlier conflicts, you know, the you know, if we'd been in this conference 15 years ago, we'd have been talking about places like Rwanda and Uganda, which have come a huge way in, in moving from conflict to stability and have a very dynamic uh, private enterprise sector as a result. Uh, to give one last example, um, Mozambique went through a very long period of conflict, and IFC went in very early uh, and invested in the Mosal project there, which, you know, created exports revenue, it created government revenue, which they spent on government services. There were lots of linkages uh, to small and medium enterprises. There was a whole path out of conflict built around that large uh, private investment project, which, which I have seen uh, and others supported. So I don't think you need to look to Asia and elsewhere. I think even within Africa, there are some terrific success stories, and I expect we're, we're going to continue to see more in the years ahead. Thank you. And I think on that very upbeat note, let's bring this uh, conversation to an end. It's been really very frank and open, and I really appreciate the panelists for being very frank and open about all the challenges, but also the opportunities. The, the need, I think, finally to dig deeper, to look closer, and to be adventurous, I think. But lots of advice here for uh, the international partners, the European Commission, the banks, uh, and also implementing agencies like GIZ. And I think what we've heard today really points us in the right direction. And I hope when we have our annual Africa Summit next year, we'll be able to look back and say, yes, some of the recommendations that we heard at this conference are being actually taken on board and being implemented. So please join me in thanking our panelists. And also thanking all of you for being here, for your questions. And if I'm not mistaken, there are refreshments outside uh, on this wonderful day. Thank you. <laughs>